All right, I think we're time to time to get rolling here. Hopefully, you got a copy of the notes. It says pursuing peace within the body. You, you going to pull that door? Sure. Hey, would you pull the door too? Because my voice will uh, blast out. Looks like a few people need it. Anybody need them? We're going half price right now. All right. Uh, Romans chapter 12, I'm going to base base in there and uh, work through it. Let me just pray and ask for the Lord's help, and then we'll we'll dive in. Lord, thank you so much for the conference. Thank you for uh, the the teaching and fellowship, the opportunities we have to strengthen one another, be encouraged, and we pray that that would be the case. Uh, Please help in this session that it, it might be helpful as we think about uh, our responsibility to teach and lead and even exemplify your word on these issues. And uh, we ask for this help in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, here, basically, I mean, what's motivating this, uh, it's clearly we've had a, a lot of conflict in, in uh, the culture around us, and I think that inevitably shapes us uh, so that it bleeds over into the church, right? We, 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 um, we can, we should be fighting against the influences uh, that that would be pushing us in unbiblical directions. I think at times we don't uh, necessarily perceive all of those, right? Because you started. Let's just take the issue of conflict. Right, you started uh, being shaped in your approach to conflict before you were aware you were being shaped about anything. Right, because you you uh, were watching people do conflict and learning from them. Right, so you're influenced by that. They were establishing the norms. By which you operated, right? I'm gonna, I'm gonna do this to Joseph here. If you've ever been overseas, you start to realize that like Americans like a lot of space between us, but in other cultures they don't, right? And we, and we immediately start to get uncomfortable, right? I mean, you're talking to people and they're like right there. And you feel uncomfortable about it, and it's not really actually that someone ever told you, hey, people shouldn't step within 18 inches of you. That's just the way you've lived, right? That's the norms that have governed you. And so you've developed a, a way of evaluating things that you feel uncomfortable or comfortable with. I remember the first time I was in East Africa with Rob Howell, and we're standing in the, the immigration line in Dar es Salaam, and uh, we're standing there, and these two men went walking by holding hands. And and I look, you know, Rob's standing right there, and he sees me go like that, and he starts laughing because he's been East Africa. He knows when they want to talk with each other, they you know take him by the hand and start to walk and talk, and it's it's simply a sign of friendship and conversation. It has no romantic thing like here, right? So in that culture, it signifies something very different than in our culture, right? And, and, and so for them, it was normal, right? The norms said it was permissible. 
in our culture it's abnormal, the norms say it's not. Right? When we talk culture, that's what we're talking about. We're shaped, right? We, we become shaped by things, and the more, uh, the more our culture actually embraces a value that um, things we used to call rude or disrespectful are actually okay. Right? I mean, who would, have, who would have imagined 10 years ago that public chants of vile profanity would fill stadiums about the president of our country? Right? I mean, you know, when I was a kid, people had been grabbing bars of soap and shoving them in their mouths. Right? But it just sort of, it's become normal. Right? It's, it's permissible. And, and so the reality of it is that that's happening all around us. And, and we are woefully naive, potentially self-deceived, if we don't think it's actually influencing us and influencing the people in our churches. That they're thinking about how to handle their disagreements with people, and, and they're not making conscious choices that... Uh, you know, that they're going to adopt this strategy. They actually just have learned this strategy. This is the way it works. And, and so what we have to do is help reframe, if I could, their view of conflict and then reshape how they handle conflict and ourselves, right? So when I say review, uh, the way they look at it. And, and decide what is normal and what's abnormal, right? Just like 20 years ago, it would have been viewed as abnormal to engage in public profanity like that as something to just be laughed about. Now it's viewed as normal. That's the, the viewpoint, right? So... So people in our churches who start to handle conflict like they handle it in the workplace, right, or like it's handled, you know, on on the talking shows, right, where where you you basically the whole deal is to get someone in the middle frame and the people in the two side frames shout at each other or shout shout over each other, right? This is the way you discuss things. And, and people are watching this nonstop, and they're coming to the conclusion that, you know, that's just the way it is, right? It's just, that's the way you handle problems, or that's the way you do discussions. And it's, you know, if you look around, I mean, I'm not trying to get into any kind of political stuff, really, just trying to illustrate. But, I mean, the whole school board thing. Right? Even if someone's on what I would consider potentially the right side of the debate, right, to show up screaming and yelling and threatening people uh, is, is obviously something's off. And, and the more that becomes actually acceptable because of the seriousness of the issues, right, the more likely it'll start to be in our churches because of the seriousness of the issues that people will be starting to do those same kinds of things because it's the, the mechanism by which it's been justified. All right? so, so what we have to understand is that 
if we're going to look at this kind of a thing as leaders, we have to recognize that there are both culture and habits at play. And we need to be be thinking about how we would address both. What's the what's the f- cultural framework, the the habits, the norms of what's acceptable and what's unacceptable? And are we addressing those things outside of the moment of conflict? <laughs> right? You you know, you uh, if you're not shaping the way people view and feel and act about things outside of the conflict, then then you're going to be in trouble when you're in the middle of it because people's beliefs are not all of a sudden just going to change. You might have a teachable moment after the fact, but in the moment, passions will have arisen and, and they're not operating uh, biblically at that point. And habits are customs and, and practices. I mean, simply the way we do or don't do things around here are both caught and taught. And they can be odd combos. I was thinking this. All right, so I, I mean, the, uh, Jacob joked around about my DMD syndrome. But hopefully you guys know we're joking. I'm just, I'm like, I'm really, uh, I'm really a mellow, chill guy. <laughs> my son laughs. Because uh, there's few things that provoke my non-chill. And he would know that. Um, but I grew up playing hockey, right? And, and I actually, uh, I grew up in an era of hockey where you didn't wear masks, so there was a little more fighting, right? And, but it was just actually a part of the culture of it. I mean, you, you, could, you could have a fight with a guy and then just you know, be talking to him fine afterward. I mean, it was just, was, it was just a part of the game. It wasn't like it was, it was like deep-seated hatred kind of thing. It just was like, you know, and there were pretty much rules for it. Right, I, I, uh, I, I, I mean, honestly, you, you used to go watch an old hockey fight, and if a guy was actually dropped a guy, he immediately stopped punching. Right, I mean, it just it, it was done. I mean, uh, you know, and 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 here's the weird thing that can shape you. Right, I'm just it's like a moment of transparency. All right. <laughs> So, like, I still enjoy a good hockey fight. Who doesn't? <laughs> I'm sure there's somebody. But, but actually, I have really struggled with, with mixed martial arts because they will beat the daylights out of people when they're knocked out. Right? I mean, the, guy, the guy's clearly out, and the guy's jumping on top of him, pounding his head. And it's just like there's something deep in me. It's like... You, you can't do that, right? The minute you know the guy's out, you stop. And, 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 and here's the thing. It's like, I really shouldn't be comfortable with either of them. And that's what I'm saying. It's like, like, I mean, is really that okay? Like, yeah, you can bloody the guy up, and as soon as he's bloody enough, you back away. But it's not okay when you have to make sure he's not going to get back up to... You know, make sure he's not going to get back up and make the judge stop you, you know, the ref stop you. But that's the problem, culture, right? I mean, it's, it's, we don't realize how much we can shape and, and then we get into a tense moment, right? And all of a sudden you can have people who are normally the kindest, calmest Christians just, just be going after it. Because they feel legitimized given the circumstances, right? 
and 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 some of sometimes it's actually uh, could be that they have views of conflict which are completely colored by their experience. Right? Either way, I mean, the person who grew up in a conflict-filled home, who the worst thing in the world in their life is conflict. So they just run from it. The first sign of conflict, it just is, it, it's just horrifying to them. Right? So, so they, they don't see at all how anybody could ever have that happen. And then other people where the only way you could actually get the thing you needed was you had to fight for it. Right? So they're like that. I mean, and, and, and they knew that you had to come out the gate swinging. And if you did, you won. Right? And you know those people in church, right? The first words out of their mouth are really intended to be a verbal shove in your chest. Because they know they got to come hard and if they do, you'll be back on your heels and then they can get what they want. Right? And that's just the way they've learned. That's the way that's the way it was in their home, that's the way it was in their workplace. And so they step into the church and and they're not going to step up and go, "So pastor, why are we doing X Y or Z?" They're not going to come with a question. They're going to come with an accusation. Because that'll put you on your heels. You know, you're automatically defensive, so they've already gotten the the upper hand in the wrestling match, right? And that's the way they've learned to handle life. And they and everybody comes like that. They, you've you've got your strategies that you might not even realize you have, and you have to think about it and and start to work to try and shape it. And so, what what I'm what I'm trying to do, and I'm and I've I've given you like the outline stuff. So I am not necessarily feeling compelled to like go line by line through it. Uh, what, what this is, just so you, you know, is essentially the condensation of a series I did based out of Romans 12 as the base uh, to, to try to help our congregation. Uh, and, and what I think, the thing I would commend to you is it's a, it's a more, uh, it's, it's trying to, to, to take this pathway, right? I, if I want people to think better about having peace in the body, then I need to anchor that in my exposition of the text, right? Because the thing that has to change their thinking is the Word of God. So instead of, and sometimes that we do this, and I, and <clears throat> I mean, I'm, I'm fully committed to exposition, but I think sometimes what people think when they say, I've got a full commitment to exposition, is that they would go, well, that means all I do is go um, verse by verse through a book, right? And, and I'd say, um, I think that probably should be the staple I would actually probably argue about the verse by verse since the verses weren't there when the Bible was written, right? So I'd actually be going idea by idea, right? An idea being as in subject, verbs, objects, right? So those sometimes go through more than one verse, right? But I, I get the idea. People are just going, you just go through the Bible sequentially, right? And that ought to be it. But at the same point, we're shepherds. 
So I do think there is a place for us to do uh, what I would consider to be pastoral theology, right? As we as we think about a text and the ramifications of that text, we're looking at so how does this shape the view of our church about this issue and the practices we engage in, right? How how do people how do people view, feel, and act based on this text? And that means. Uh, at times you then, I think, have to do what would be a little bit more of a theologizing of it, which would be gathering in other passages of Scripture that are significant to help people really orient this passage correctly. Right? And and on some of these kinds of issues, I think that's really important. So, so what I did was I preached a four-week series... Uh, based in Romans 12, with verse 18 being the, the, the really, like, home base, right? But the first one was this first main point, which is foundational truths, that, that I felt like if you're going to really start talking about being at peace, you really have to have people understand biblically what the concept of peace is. Especially if they're bringing to the table... Uh, their own ideas about peace, right? Peace, peace for them might be you never have a disagreement, right? That's peace. So you just, you know, you just sort of accommodate, right? You just, you know, just get along to go along, and that's what they want. They just, you know, where seldom is heard a discouraging word, right? That's just the way they want to work their way through it, and and so you've got to walk through that. So. So what I did was start there with um, rooting this in our relationship with God, right? So if you look at, and this is just the flyover, the first one, because it's the one I'm assuming we ha- share the most common ground on, <laughs> right? What it means to have peace with God. The place I started to help them see this, though, is to see it in view of depravity, right? Sinful humans don't know the path of peace. That's what Romans 3.17 says, right? So, so apart from God, people are going to be uh, pursuing selfish agendas, which inevitably will lead to conflict when you have diverse agendas, right? If everybody's doing their own thing, they're, 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 they're wiring, they're hardwired, 2 Corinthians 5 would say, to live for themselves. And the best they will do is broker satisfied ways to interact uh, based on self-interest. Right? So I'm not going to fight with Joseph because it's not in my best interest to do that. Right? Or, or can we negotiate a peace that is we're both mutually satisfied, but essentially the engine is self, right? And that is that is what's, I mean, that, I think in some ways, you could put as the, here's what's happening in the United States in 2021, right? The, the negotiated piece of mutual self-interest is falling apart. And, and so all you're doing now is having people step into the factions to see which one's going to win. Right? For, for decades, we made it by going, we all give up a little bit to gain a little bit. Right? It wasn't necessarily a spiritual tie, but it was enlightened self-interest of some sort. 
And now people have come to the point where there's not, right, there's not, in their minds, there's no way you can broker the peace. Someone's going to win, somebody's going to lose. Nobody wants to be the loser, so let's go to war. Right, and that's and that's that's where we are. I mean, we're we're headed down the Roman Empire. I think if I was going to be sort of bleak about it, the control center of an unregenerate person is their selfish desires, right? The flesh, and in fact, empowered by satanic schemes, and that's what James one would say, Ephesians two, Second Corinthians five, right? So we need to recognize that's that's the point. Selfish desires lead to the exploitation of others, whether rooted in an arrogant sense of entitlement, I take it for my happiness, or insecurity, right? I I need or use this for my happiness. There's something I don't have that I have to have, right? And so they're doing it with a a kind of uh, pursuit of self-protection, or they're just, you know, they see everybody else's as simply tools for themselves, right? They, they just manipulate the playing field to get what they want, right? And that's, that's where it is. And I think uh, unregenerate people can make temporary peace settlements, but they're the result of self-interest. And thankfully for common grace, that works out for, for us often, right? God restrains the selfish impulses uh, or else we'd all be in worse shape than we are. Right? But when he starts handing over people and society, you start to see the full outworkings of it. Right? And we're in that kind of uh, decline. So, so there's the problem. And, and uh, so our only hope we'll talk about is if there's actually regeneration. Um, but we do need to realize the process of sanctification is not complete, so we still have fleshly fights that happen within the church. And you know the te- I mean, what's what would be the you know sort of the poster poster boy text for it? Division in the church, described as being the manifestation of fleshliness, right? First Corinthians one through four. I mean, Paul says you're not acting as spiritual, but as mere humans. You're operating the way people who don't know Christ operate. That's why you have this divisiveness in your church, right? So, so what Paul's saying is there can still be the remnants of fleshliness that exhibit itself in the body of believers, and and so it's not just an organizational thing. It's a spiritual thing, right? And therefore, it's a shepherding thing. Uh, clearly, the solution is restored peace with God because that renews the pursuit of peace with others, right? Relational peace follows restored peace with God. Uh, Romans 5.1, we have peace with God, and that's a part of what would be built into the Romans 12.1, since the mercies of God, here's the way you should live, right? So it goes peace with God, and then we can pursue peace with others. So that, that is significant for us when we start to think about how we're addressing this, right? Because we may be, if, if I use the terms that, that uh, Jacob was using, right? We, we're seeing the fruit of broken peace, and we just start working on the fruit. We're not necessarily thinking, okay, is there, is there a deeper root issue here? 
right? That we have to we have to deal with their relationship with God. And relational peace flows from renewed power from God, right? It's the 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 contrast of the work of the spirit and the work of the flesh in our lives. It is actually the work of the spirit that produces peace. 14:17, the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And it's his work that causes us to be full of joy and peace in believing, right? And, and so we need to realize that if we're going to see the, uh, the, the fruit of the vertical peace show up in the horizontal peace, that will only happen through the work of the Holy Spirit. Because what's one aspect of the fruit of the Spirit? Right? Peace. So, so it's, it has to be an internally driven work of the Spirit to effect it. Because the thing that makes us peace breakers is our fleshliness. And the only antidote we have to that is the work and power of the Spirit. Right? If, if, uh, I mean, the only genuine antidote to change us, right? We can, we can, uh, we can secure peace by conformity. Right? And sometimes that's what we can do in churches. We make it so painful for somebody to disturb the peace, we keep the peace. Right? They don't want to they don't want to they don't want to get out of line because they get out of line, they're gonna get hammered. Right? At that point we're not producing spiritual maturity. Right? It'd be um you know, I do. I, mean, I probably have drawn this somewhere along the lines, but I mean, my my little theory on it, right, is um, you know, if we're talking outside versus inside, right? So what we'd say if we're if we're just talking growing from from immaturity to maturity, a mature person is controlled by the inside more than the outside, right? Because foolishness is in the heart of a child, right? But they move toward wisdom. So you're talking, you know, foolish to wise. And God's gift to move us there is the rod and reproof. Right? The rod is external conformity. Right? You're, you're not engaging in foolishness because of the consequences of it. The reproof is aimed at the heart. So that you're actually thinking wisely, right? And I, I didn't know my son was going to be in here, but you know, if, when when my I had four four boys, right? When they're little kids, you go around and you you know you put these little things in the wall sockets so they don't touch them, right? And when they're really little and they can't understand electricity, they start to put their hand there. You give them a little pain so they avoid big pain. Right, and you expect to just sort of train them not to do that, right? But you know, if you came along and one of my sons was sixteen, and I was still having to slap their hand to keep it out of the light socket, you start to think there's a problem because at some point they should start to see and understand that, right? And and here's my point is that we're we can sometimes keep peace by the rod. We haven't actually taught the, the wisdom that is from above, which is peaceable, 
right? We want to see them moving toward that. And, and we have to recognize that's only going to come if it's an internal work of the Spirit of God to change them away from living for themselves, but living for Christ, like Second Corinthians 5 talks about. And so, so we have to realize that and, and pursue that. So, so just, I mean, ramifications, I think, apart from regeneration, real lasting peace is impossible without the Spirit's work. The pursuit of peace is powerless. Unless you see life, people, and problems in light of these truths, you won't be a peacemaker. You must, I mean, you must be right with God to be right with others, resting in God's promises and powers, relying on the Spirit by faith, responding to others with confidence and commitment, right? Confidence in God's saving grace and promises. Uh, and, and here's what I'd say is that, you know, people need to see that that, I mean, it, you know, like we sing, it's well with my soul, right? So, so in the present conflict, you don't have to get the outcome you want for it to be well with your soul, right? If they think everything is banked on me getting my way, right, then they're, they're off base on it, right? They, they can lose the temporal fight and still win. And they have to have that hope in them. That hope only comes from the work of the Spirit. And so contentment with your earthly circumstances and God's eternal plan for His glory and your good. This trial is temporary. Their sin cannot separate you from God, and God will deal with it in His time. I I have to be coming out from there. Because if I don't, right, we're talking about a different view, right? If I have the view that this world operates by, then the price tag on things are very different, right? Because the world puts high price tags, like this is of real value, to things that God puts low price tags on, right? I mean, just just think of Jesus' words. Blessed are you when men revile you and speak evil of you for my name's sake. Rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven. Right? The world will go to war over insults. Because people saying bad things about me has a gigantic price tag on it. That's a really important item. And here's what Jesus says. Rejoice. Be glad. Your reward is great in heaven. Man's approval and applause has a very small price tag for Jesus. Right? So which of those two you hold to will affect how you react to it when people are saying things about you that are slanderous, right? Speak evil against you for my name's sake. Right? It's not, or like Peter talks about, they slander you. Right? If, if, if your good name is the great value for you, right, then, then you're going to go at it. If, if the name of Christ and trust in his promise that, that what they're actually doing is giving you great reward in heaven, 
then then you're not nece- you're not uh, necessarily to use a hockey phrase going to drop the gloves. Right? You're you're going to go. I'm going to leave it to the Lord. I'm going to entrust myself to Him, who judges faithfully. All right. So so we need to, and I and I think I you know when we really start to teach that and 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 lead that way. Right, we help people remember that God was not obligated to make peace with us, but He did. Christ died for the one with whom we have a conflict, and obviously, um, I'm assuming a certain expansiveness to His death that you might not agree with. But um, if it is a brother or sister in Christ, then then I hope you at least concede that, <laughs> right? If this is one for whom Christ died, then then I need to recognize their value before God, right? And not feel comfortable destroying him for whom Christ died, to use a biblical statement of it. God has promised you eternal joy through Christ, so don't let temporary trials and trouble rob you of it, right? You, you, you can't do that. All right, so that sort of backdrop then moves you into Romans 12. In verse 18, it says, If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. All right, so uh, this, is, uh, this is what I'd be mean by sort of digging in. It's, it, what I'd say is sort of like the Puritan way of doing it, right? They'd, they'd preach uh, these series from a single verse kind of a thing as they just sort of you know, suck the, the every ounce of flavor out of it, right? So, so here's the first part of it, that phrase, if possible, right? That, that, that phrase, uh, those words, I should say, suggest that it might not be possible to be at peace with some people, right? If possible, be at peace, and and I think if we're going to help people really think about this correctly, right? I'm, I mean, have a right view of peace in our relationships. They have to have a category that says, "I'm not obligated in these cases," because it's not possible for me to pursue peace here, right? And and the reason I think that's important is that you can have people who will struggle with false guilt. Right? They, they, like, they feel like they've broken God's commandment when they, they pursued a resolution to this that couldn't be described as peaceful. Right? Or, sort of on the opposite side, you can have people use a text like this to manipulate people. Right? Oh, hey, we're supposed to have peace. And we need peace. And, and they act as if peace is the first principle, right, to the exclusion of many other truths from Scripture. Right? So just, just to try and illustrate my point, I would suggest at least three kinds of situations where we can't be at peace. Right? And, and I do that from other texts of Scripture. I don't think peace is permissible if it compromises God's truth. I mean, look at chapter 16, verses 17 and 18. Here's Paul writing to the same people, and he says, Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances 
contrary to the teaching which you learned, and turn away from them. For such men are slaves, not of our Lord Christ, but of their own appetites, and by their smooth and flattering speech they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. Right? So, so here are people who are compromising the truth of God's word, and, P, and Paul says, you don't make peace with that. You identify that and avoid it. I mean, John goes so, so far as to say, if they come into your house, you don't even extend a greeting to them. Right? I mean, you, or else you become a sharer in their work. Paul says people have departed from the gospel, let them be anathema. That's not exactly like a peace be with you kind of thing, right? <laughs> I mean, so, so what I'd say is we've got to recognize that some people will claim, oh, you know, we just, why do we, why do we have to have this conflict? Why do we have to have this fighting? We just, you know, let's, peace, peace, peace. And, and you, can't, you can't do that because a false peace can destroy lives. That's what the dissensions and hindrances is referring to. And, and a false pr- peace produces ungodly partnerships. You participate in his evil deeds, Second John 11. Or a false peace betrays the gospel of Christ, Galatians 1, 6-10. I mean, genuine peace cannot be made apart from truth. Right? It is faith, love, and peace, right, that, that, that flows out in that way. And we have to recognize that. So, so here's what I'd say is, um, and now I'm saying this, and maybe I'm, I'm expressing, you know, I'm, I'm revealing my sort of window of life, right? So I come from a long, a long heritage of separatist fundamentalism, for which I am extremely thankful and still believe, right? I've never abandoned that. I think the Bible teaches separation from those who claim to be Christians and aren't and those who would fellowship with them, right? You can't extend the right hand of Christian fellowship to somebody who's actually not a Christian. That's to compromise the gospel. But some people have used that, uh, I think, at times to their advantage, right? They... they they used the fight to build a crowd, right? We were talking about some of that, you know, that happened in the in the eighties and nineties, right? If you if you pick, uh, you know, if you demonize an enemy, you can rally troops to you, right? So so they deliberately choose a path of breaking the peace for their own advantage, right? So so that kind of stuff happens. Then you get the people who then go that you know. That's horrible, and they want to go all to just peace, and now they're afraid to ever break the peace, right? And and it becomes the the kind of environment with within which uh, error and and false teachers can flourish because no one's willing, you know, to wrap them on the head with the shepherd's crook, right? Because we just you know we want peace, we want peace, and what I'd say is. These two things are, in con- are not in conflict. They're not, I should say this, they're not in conflict biblically. Right? So they might be in conflict in our minds as to how we navigate it, and we have to prayerfully seek wisdom about it, but, but there's really no conflict. Right? We are supposed to be pursuing peace when it is possible. And it is not possible when someone is abandoning the teachings of the apostles. 
right? It's, it's not possible. So, so we have to be willing to, at that point, say, there can be no peace between us on this, <laughs> right? Because I need to be on, on Jesus' side. And, and he doesn't make peace with those who deny him. Right? So, so I think we have to be willing to do that. I don't think as well we can say peace is permissible if it contradicts justice. Right? We have obligations to pursue justice in that regard. Right? It doesn't disregard righteousness and justice. It recognizes God's appointed boundaries. For instance, leaving room for God's wrath. Uh, we don't step into the place of God's servants in these matters. right? So government has responsibilities to bear the sword, chapter 13 says. And so, so here's a part of where we need to recognize it. That, that, that the pursuit of peace does not mean that believers should or must overlook or cover up crimes. And again, I think we've turned the tide on that a little bit because of all the stuff that's happened, right? But, but when someone actually is violating the law, we don't go, oh, you know, we need to have peace in your home <laughs> or we need to have peace in the church about it and, and actually overlook injustice in a way that, that actually can be used to defy God's will on it. Right? It's, it's not our obligation. Right? And I think that's the thing we have to know. And, and, and again, I think it should just underscore, because it's not... And everybody is wrong. Right? So don't, don't hear me saying this as just an indictment of churches. Right? The whole Penn State saga is illustrative of the fact that people outside of the church weren't sure exactly how to handle all this stuff for a long time. But by 2021, everybody should know if someone's abusing a child, for instance, it's not a question of, like, we can solve this ourselves, right? We, we have to turn it over to the people who have the responsibility to do that. Okay, it's, it's not the church's job to act as human government. Right, so so that's where we have to realize there are spheres within which we live. Right, we accept authority and responsibility, personal, congregational, and civil. And and I I can recognize this is that right as a as a person, someone might commit a crime against me, and I might be able to look at relational peace in the midst of that without foregoing the criminal responsibility. Right, because I'm not the judge. That's the civil component. Right, and and what I have to do is recognize that 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 I can forgive a person and not actually free them from all consequences of their actions, especially if I'm not in charge of the consequences. Right? I mean, if, if, if someone murdered somebody I loved, I could forgive them and, 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 and the government could still be pursuing their incarceration or execution. Right? So peace for me is, is not going, well, I got to step over into the church and say, certainly we don't want to kick this person out of the church. 
right, if they're unrepentant. And I certainly don't step over into the civic and go, oh, yeah, and you definitely don't want to do anything to them. Right? I mean, we, we tend to get it all blurred together. So, so, so as an individual, right, peace, pursuit of peace doesn't mean I don't pursue the other things if those are moral obligations, right? I have to be cautious not to get, again, it can be manipulated, right? The, uh, not to be jaded, but right, the person who has the most to lose because of their sinful activity probably might be the quickest to plead peace, right? Oh, can, you know, listen, I'm so sorry. Can we just... Can we just sort of work this out, right? And 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 the motives of their heart are only known to God, right? And and we need to recognize that sometimes they can manipulate the circumstance with a verse like this. And I don't think that that's a proper use of it, right? If someone commits a crime among God's people, it is not the church's right to free them from the consequences of that. All right, so pursuing peace would not mean we cover it up or we don't, we don't deal with it or don't address it. All right? I think as well, if it corrupts the church, and this would be the question, right? So if someone says we're supposed to pursue peace, how do we handle things like church discipline? Right? Well, you know, there's an answer, repentance, all right, because repentance stops church discipline. But short of that, you might have to break the peace because you can't have peace by tolerating unrepentant sin. Right? That's not a negotiation you can make. So, so the reality of it is no one should be using that kind of thing. And I think we have to help people see that divisive people like Titus 3 cannot get their way under the banner of, well, you know, let's all get along. The other people, accommodating them, right? Or unrepentant, sinful people, you can't, you can't dodge in it. All right, so there's the first thing I think we have to help people see. And, I'm, and maybe, uh, maybe it's like the really narrow window of people in your church who would struggle with this, right? Because our culture is not inclined to, you know, to probably... Uh, err on the side of keeping the peace when we shouldn't keep the peace, probably except for the theological component, right? But we need to teach and help people view, right, that the goal isn't simply uh, cessation of conflict, it's obedience to God. So we can't have, we can't have a false peace brokered, right? We can't sign peace treaties with God's enemies, we need to be willing to stand with God. And if that means peace will only come through a conflict, then that's the way it works, right? So people like Alexander and Hymenaeus need to be handed over to Satan, right? There, there needs to be confrontation to the face of Peter when he's going not straight with the gospel, Right? So, and, and that's important because lots of people who wave the banner of peace would think that Paul was wrong. And he wasn't. 
right? Paul was right to confront Peter, right? Honestly, I mean, Dr. McCune used to say, sometimes people are more Christian than Christ. I mean, there's lots of people who would think Jesus was a peace breaker in Matthew 23 when he's going after the hypocrites and calling them whitewashed sepulchers. I mean, Jesus, tone down your rhetoric a little bit. Right? I mean, they, they, they don't have a category for that. And what I'm saying is, is that when those things happen in the Scripture, it's because they've come to the conclusion that it's not possible in this circumstance to tolerate something. We have to move. Right? And that, that's an important category that we have to help people. Uh, help husbands, help wives, help parents, help church members. Right? There is a time that it is appropriate to engage in a fight against sin. You can't use a false claim of peace to, to avoid that. All right? Second thing, it's peace on your side of the fence, right? So the text says in, in Romans 12, 18, so far as it depends on you. So there must be, in a, in a, in a conflict kind of a scenario, uh, some sense in which you look at it and say, uh, is, is, is the problem on my side of the fence, Right? As much as it depends on you, be at peace. And, and that's important to recognize in it because there are times at which it doesn't depend on you. <laughs> and there's not much you can do about it. Right? And, and again, you've got to help people think about it right. So that means the first thing I think would call for honest self-examination like Matthew 7 says. Right, so Jesus is actually not against dealing with sin in Matthew 7. The hypocrisy is you're concerned about the sin in the other person, but you don't care about your own. Right? He says, take care of the, 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 the beam in your eye, then you will be able to help the person with the speck in his eye. Right? So lots of times the popular way we handle it is, hey, you just forget about that other guy's eye. But that's not what Jesus says. He says, first, take care of your problem. Then you can actually help somebody. And if you're not willing to take care of your problem, you're a hypocrite. Because you really don't care about sin. You just care about what that guy's doing. If you really cared about sin, you'd be looking in the mirror first, right? So, so we do have to start right there. And, and what about my side of this, right? If... if if we're going to be sure that peace doesn't depend on us, then we have to carefully assess it. And, and I think clearly uh, God's provisions for us, I think he's given us three. Um, two are uh, what I would say is more objective, perhaps, uh, the word of God. So, so what we should do is you know, take and, and lay down what we understand of the situation and our actions in it, lay it down alongside of God's word and say, you know, did, did, my, did my response, did my words, did my actions, are my thoughts in this, are they consistent with what God's word says about this, right? So I'm looking in the mirror of the word to see. So 
I want to be willing to put myself to the test of that, right? And that's what we ought to be doing. I mean, you know, I don't really, I I don't, um, you know, I mean, I, I, I can think of many, many, many times after my wife and I have had an earnest discussion and it seems like we've come to sort of a loggerhead, you know, we're like, how did that happen? Right? And, 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 I, and, I'm, and I'll sit there and start thinking, okay, so, because so, my tendency is to think what she did, but then have to go, all right, so, all right, did I handle this the way God says I should handle it? Right? I mean, were my words what God says my words should be? Was, was my response, right? So that's the first thing. Because I want to deal with the problem, and there actually might be a problem on her side of the fence. Right? Because she, she's a sinner. It might be. It might be. Just a chance. All right? But I, the thing I've got to deal with first is mine. Right? And I need to deal with mine according to the Scripture. Obviously, so he's given us the Word. He's given us the Spirit who will, in fact, convict us in that regard. So I should be praying for him to help me think correctly on it. And he's given us God's people. And that's where sometimes we have to say. I mean, I've, I've had to say this as a pastor. Right? I've, I've said it to pastoral staff members. I've said it to deacons. You know, when some... Uh, you know, some kind of problem. I remember the very first time, I mean, this would be 30-some years ago, there was a, uh, when I first came back, there was a deacon who had been sideways to my predecessor, and it was becoming more and more sideways to me. Like, if I said white, he'd say black, right? And, and he, he came after me in a meeting about something, and so I just spoke really directly to it and refuted what he was saying and, and did it, you know, with directness. But I remember thinking, coming out of it, um, I hope I didn't sin. I don't think I did. But so, so I, you know, I, I, I said to some people I trusted, who were there and watched it. Okay, you, you heard how I dealt with that problem. Do you think that what I did was was right? Right? Did I cross a line at all? Is there anything that I need to, you know, I need you to, to point out, right? Because when someone takes a swing at you, you're not always thinking the most clearly when you start to respond, right? So it was like, I need some people that I trust to be willing to say, you know, you, you maybe, you know, you... You maybe should have stepped on with one foot, but the second foot, and then the jump up and down. <laughs> that it might just a little bit, right? No, they didn't say that. But the reality is that's sometimes what we have to do, right? We have to, we have, to have somebody who's outside of the situation, who's willing to speak truth to us to say, listen, the, the way you're handling this is not. And if you've ever done marital counseling, I mean, you, you know this. Right, because you've had couples sit in front of you who are talking to each other, and you're thinking, "Wow, can you not? Can you not tell how rude this is?" Right? Or you've watched. I mean, I've watched couples, and 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 like one of them says something, and the other one immediately gives the most negative interpretation of it, and I'm sitting there going, "That's not what they meant," because I'm I'm not. In, enmeshed in it, right? 
So, so that, that could happen to you too. I mean, you might be so deep into this that you're not seeing it clearly and you need somebody to help you see it. Right? And, and if you think you only need the Spirit, right, you're forgetting that God has given us an assembly of people to speak truth into us. And, and in fact, we need people to speak the truth in love so we can grow. So, so we need to do that. I think an honest self-exam sincerely seeks truth and righteousness, humbly receives rebuke and conviction, and faithfully addresses failures. All right? Because if you're wanting peace, and let's say I come to my conclusion, I go, yeah, you know, I did... I did speak rudely to my wife, right? So, so here's the deal, right? I need to acknowledge that to God, seek his forgiveness. I need to acknowledge it to my wife and seek her forgiveness. And you know what will undercut that? I know I spoke rudely to you when you did X, Y, Z, right? So all of a sudden, I'm explaining why I spoke rudely. I'm really sorry I spoke to you, but it really just bothers me when you do. Right? At that point, I'm undercutting the sincerity of my repentance that I was actually the source of my sinful choice, like we heard about in the first session. And if we're like that as pastors, too, boy, I, you know, I shouldn't have said that to you, but... Or I shouldn't have addressed that problem from the pulpit like I did, but, right? Anytime you get to that word, you're starting to undercut the whole peace process, right? Because you're essentially saying that it's your fault. Just acknowledge what you did wrong and and then move to solve the problem, (laughs) right? Don't excuse it in that regard. If you're going to take care of it on your side of the fence, it compels, I think, the pursuit of reconciliation. Through confession when you've wronged someone else, through confrontation when someone has wronged you, right? You, you need to be prepared to do that. If you want to have peace and you say, all right, it was on my side of the fence, so the answer then is confession of that. I'm going to, I'm going to address my part that has broken the peace, and I'm only responsible for my part, right? So I'm, I'm acknowledging that I have sinned. If it's not on your side of the fence, it's on their side of the fence, and you're supposed to pursue reconciliation, which I believe you are inside, for instance, context of relationships in the local church, in the home, right? I don't know how compelled I need to be to pursue some guy on the other side of the country who thinks I'm an idiot, right? I mean, I'm... We don't have a relationship, and I don't know, I wouldn't necessarily run away from it, but I mean, I would spend my whole life tracking down people that I don't even know to say, hey, I noticed you said this about me, you know, that, I don't think we're there. I think we're talking in the church, in the home, right? So, so let's say they have broken the peace, then I think you have an obligation to pursue that. And I would say this, and this is important. Right? Love should cover a multitude of sins. So if love covers it, then you have peace. Right? So you don't have to go any farther. Right? If someone does something foolish or stupid and you look at it and go, you know, I bet they were just worn down. 
they didn't mean anything by it. I'm not, I'm not going to sweat it. Right? You extend mercy like God does to you constantly, then you have peace. There's no peace broken if you've actually let love cover it. But if you find yourself not able to, right, when you see that person immediately in your heart, this unresolved issue is there, so that there's not peace between you, then I think you need to pursue it. And you need to, you need to deal with it the way the scriptures say we should deal with it, right? If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault, right? You need to, you need to pursue that. And I would say a part of what we need to help cultivate in the congregation, if we're going to do it right, is to help people learn how to engage in constructive rebuke, right? So preach on things like that from the scriptures. I mean, a great text would be like Proverbs 16, 23, and 24, which would say you need to, you give a rebuke thoughtfully, right? I, I try to think about what's the best way to make this case to the person. I give thought to it. I try to do it persuasively, right? I'm actually wanting to see them respond to it. So how can I help them see the need to? And most often, pleasantly. Right? Because most people immediately stiffen their neck if someone just starts coming at them with verbal bombs. Right? I mean, it's just all of us do that. We put up our guard. So, so Proverbs would say the way we would go to them is, is actually having thought through how do I secure. I mean, think of Nathan confronting David. Right? He obviously had to have given some thought to the idea what would secure the conviction in David's heart that I would like him to do? So I'm going to tell him a story about sheep, because he was a shepherd. And I'm going to talk about an egregious act of betrayal involving that. And you know what? Nathan approaches David. David self-condemns himself, right? This was evil, and then Nathan goes, you're the man, right? So he actually had thought through his confrontation enough to try to secure a, a right response in that regard. And sometimes we have a breach in peace, and all we're wanting to do is, is pound the person, right? I mean, years, I heard this proverb ages ago, and I, I had a bad experience with it, right? So... Apparently, there, I thought there was a Chinese proverb that said, do not use a hatchet to remove a fly from your friend's forehead. And one time I was teaching a group of like 30 Chinese pastors from the house church, and I told them that proverb, and they all went, we've never heard that. <laughs> right? So some dude in a fortune cookie factory is just making, <laughs> he's just making stuff up. But it is a good idea, right? You know, if you've got a fly on their forehead, you don't use a hatchet to remove it. And sometimes that's the way we are verbally, all right? The guy does have a problem, and it's like, wham! Instead of us trying to win the right response because we want peace, we want a piece of them, P-I-E-C-E, right? Not peace with them. And I think we've got to do that. Well, it, it, it may have, right? 
But I think in some senses, then that would, you know, if we treat people cavalierly, right, then, then we're probably not coming at it from the right, right? I mean, because we might not have the actual fear of our lives, but we, could, we should fear some, or like as in a healthy fear of, do I want to hurt the church? Right? Do I want to destroy my marriage? Do I, you know, because I think when we're operating from a self standpoint, we see that person as an enemy rather than someone we're trying to, to win to it. Okay, and, and I think it means we have to extend forgiveness, right? And I know there's in actually good workshops and stuff that's on that. I don't personally buy that we have to forgive unrepentant people in the same full way that, like, just like God, God doesn't doesn't forgive me until I confess my sin, right? So, but I think the heart and disposition is toward forgiveness, right? And so we need to have that and cultivate that and teach that to our churches. The goal is not smashing sin. It's bringing people to repentance, right? The goal is not punishment. It's correction, right? We want forgiveness to reign, Even the act of church discipline is intended so that the person will be saved in the day of judgment, right? We're we're actually pursuing the the sinner in that way. And then I just, I mean, basically, the fourth point is practice of peace, and that's based in the last part of it, be at peace with all men. And all I did here was was, uh, try and frame it out. And, and so you must have the right perspective, right? You're not re- responsible for their part. It's as much as it depends on you. You're not responsible for God's part. We leave room for his work. And in fact, we're not responsible only for believers. And I throw that in there because it seems to me a coarsening of Christian discourse, right? That, that basically is going uh, from a true thing. There is an us and a them, but now treating it as if the them are all our enemies. And we can be rude and harsh, and, and it's fine for us to pursue conflict with lost people. And we're not supposed to be pursuing a fight with lost people. We're, we're actually going to have the fight, but it's supposed to be coming from them. <laughs> right? And where we can, since it says all people, where we can, we should want peace with even people who don't know Christ, if it's possible, right? So my neighbors, I don't want to have fights with them just because they don't know Jesus. Right? Now, if the only way I can not have a fight with them is if I abandon my confession of faith in Christ, then I can't have peace with my neighbors. Right? I mean, that's what I'm saying. If possible, <laughs> I want to have peace with all men. I'm not supposed to be out looking for the fight with lost people. They're going to bring the fight to me. Right, And as much as possible, as much as it depends on me, I want to be at peace with them because that's what the text is talking about. And I need to have a whole battery of sinful reactions out of my life, which are from the verses right around this, and gracious responses that would replace them and work at it. Now here's, and I'll just finish with this because I need to be done. All right, So I think if we're going to change the culture in our churches, those norms happen in in the full package, right? We teach what the Bible says. We exemplify what the Bible teaches, right? 
and 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 we try to lead and structure the way we deal with problems according to those principles. And 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 so here's the thing that the 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 benefit of this as a shepherd, right? So you teach this, and nowadays you know you can you can find ways to have it become a part of your stock answer, right? You've got, you know, like anybody, anybody, I've done this. People come to say, hey, I've got this conflict going on, and I'm not sure exactly how to handle it. I can actually start to talk with them, but I could say, hey, do you remember when I did this series from Romans 12 about it as a reference point? Or I can go, hey, listen, here's the date on those sermon audio, right? I think it would be good for you to listen to those because I think they'd help you think about some of this as you move in. Right, so I can, I can put them to that teaching resource that will help them. But it also is the basis on the way in which I would be interacting with them. All right, so hey, here's what the scriptures say: as much as it depends on you. So can I ask you some questions? Right? Have you thought about how you may have contributed to this? What's that question? Right, that's a question pushing them toward an honest self-exam. Right, so my my first, you know, so I think you need to sit down and maybe think through the conflict, and say what have you contributed to it, because Jesus wants you to look in the mirror before you look out the window, right? So, so what may have you contributed to it? Okay, and if you want some, you know, some feedback on that, I'd be glad to talk with you. Right, so I'm pushing them now to try to start to live it out. Right, so that's how I lead. But that means I have to be living consistently with that, right? Because if I'm telling them that, either by my teaching or my advice and counsel, and then they watch me solve problems in the church in a very different way, right? Don't, you know, don't challenge Doran or else he'll tear your head off, right? Then, then, then this is not going to have credibility, right? And if I'm not willing to acknowledge when I have erred, then I'm going to cultivate the same kind of unresponsiveness in them. right? Because the culture changes when you have all of those things. right? You're teaching and you're showing what it means to live it out. And then you're helping reinforce it in the conversations and possibly confrontations. Right? So someone does something that shouldn't be done in a public setting. And you say to them, hey, that's not the way we handle problems here. Right? And, and you're willing to confront it. If need be, right then and there. Because everybody needs to know this is not the way we follow Christ. Right? If we just sort of step up in the sermon preach a sermon, walk away, live differently, and don't care if people are disobeying it in the church, that's not going to shape the culture. right? The culture will only be shaped through the full orb of those in that regard. All right, thanks.